God, we thank you that you are present with us. You are always present with us. I ask that you would take these words, Lord God, that you would anoint them. And Lord, as each and every one of us leaves this morning, we will know something new and precious about who you are. So, Father, I commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Very grand. <laughs> and remember last time we talked about two different kinds of slaves. Yes. And then we went on to consider being a bond servant of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus had actually said to the Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, if he was talking in King James English, but truly everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's in John 8, 3, uh, 34. And in Romans seven fourteen, Paul describes himself as sold as a slave to sin. So that concept of slavery is there. Now he discusses it a whole lot more fully in Galatians 4, <clears throat> where he's actually using the imagery of a child and a family and the difference between a slave child and a freeborn son and heir. Now for people in those times, of course, that was a very clear picture. They knew what that looked like. Here, though, Paul talks about being released from that bondage of slavery through faith in Jesus. And in verse 7, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So in his glorious mercy and grace, the Lord rescued us and brought us to the fullness of true freedom. So linking then to last week's message and the fact that this one is called Friends of God, Amen. <laughs> and we're thinking about choosing personally to be a bond servant who willingly lays down my life to serve Jesus and to serve other people as he did. These are the ones Jesus called friends, those who obey his word and follow his example of being a self-sacrificing servant. So you might like to turn to John 15 again because I want to reread this passage we read last week. It's John 15, verse 12 to 17. It's beautiful. My command is this. Notice Jesus gives a command, not a suggestion. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. And the more I think about it, the more I'm stunned by that. The great creator, the ruler of the universe, invites me to be his friend. Wow. It's that stunning decision of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to invite me, to invite you, to actually share life with them. Our Creator, our Redeemer, our Lord and Saviour invites us into intimate relationship with Him. Remember, we were specifically created to share fellowship with our Creator. That's why He made us, to be His friends. God longs for friendship with us. He loves 
He is pure love. Let's pray that the Lord graciously gives us new and deeper understanding of who he is and what it means for him, as well as what it means for us, that we are his friends. Now, as we read through the scriptures, we meet many characters who had very, very special relationships with the Lord. Right at the start, Adam and Eve had the ideal setup with the Lord before they sinned and ruined it all. It's very easy, though, when we read about some of the major Bible characters to put them on a bit of a pedestal. Since they had huge roles to play in God's plan for Israel and, in fact, for the whole world. Yet it's important to remember that fundamentally, each and every one of them is just like you and me. For instance, James says of the prophet Elijah in James 5.17, he was a man just like us. He was a man just like us. And the same could be said of any of the people we meet in the Bible. Think of Gideon. He was a nobody. It says he was the least person in the smallest tribe in Judges 8. And look what he achieved. And take the Apostle Peter, for instance. Rough, tough, uneducated fisherman who opened his mouth to change feet. <laughs> but he was one of Jesus' inner circle. And he was one, he was the one, who was given two magnificent revelations of who Jesus was. In Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And those revelations were given to this uneducated fisherman. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament characters in the Bible came from a very wide range of backgrounds. There was the highly educated like Paul, through to the leper, and the beggar in the street. There were tax collectors, Roman soldiers, housewives, rabbis, kings, farmers, and little children. And God met them all. He chose them and appointed them for his eternal purposes. It's about God's sovereignty. He and he alone chooses us, and he alone decides what our destiny will be. In three different passages, Isaiah reminds us of this using the imagery of the potter and the clay. So, for instance, in, in 64.8, he says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. In other words, God chose each and every one of us just because. We can be and we must be who and what Father created us to be. It's pointless trying to be anything else. And it grieves me when I see parents who want to make their children into something they weren't made to be. You know, my son will be a lawyer or my daughter will be a whatever. And they weren't necessarily created to be that. And with all that in mind, I want to take a few moments to look at three particular characters from the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, and David. Because the scriptures tell us something very, very special about their particular relationships with the Father. Each of their stories is very long and very complex. 
way beyond the scope of this message, but I just want to pick out a few things about each of those men. <laughs> and I've got to the point now where I start asking questions. <laughs> like, why on earth did the Lord call Abraham in the first place? What was so special about him? Well, guess what? He did it just because he did. And Hebrews 11 gives us a brief outline of Abraham's life. We can read that at some stage. Focusing on his faith and trust in the Lord. He set out on a journey to an unknown destination, living as a foreigner. The chapters of Genesis that deal with his life clearly give only a small part of the whole story. There are many years about which we are told absolutely nothing. Was there any interaction between Abraham and the Lord in those years? Well, I'd like to think so, but... It's not beyond the realms of possibility that the Lord consolidated Abraham's faith and trust with long periods of silence. He may well have done that. Abraham's life was one of powerful encounters with the Lord God, alongside severe testing and instances of human frailty. We mustn't forget he was just a man. Take his calling in Genesis 12. And here the Lord gives him a glorious sevenfold blessing when he is first called. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And you will be a blessing. Seven wow, blessings, all at once. Now, Abraham goes on with his life. He had conflict with his nephew Lot. He defeated a huge army. And then he encountered the mysterious Melchizedek. So we go through <coughs> chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 15 begins with a vision in which the Lord continues these extraordinary promises and blessings to Abraham. Genesis 15.1, he says, Don't be afraid, Abraham, or Abraham at that point. I am your shield and your very great reward. God himself will be Abraham's reward. And on two separate occasions, the Lord made an eternal covenant with Abraham. And you can read those as you go through the chapters of Genesis. The covenant for untold offspring and the covenant of inheritance in the land in chapters 15 and 17. And as Abraham's story unfolds, we see his humanity he was really naughty and had a son by Hagar. And we're still facing the consequences of that, actually. Absolutely. We, the Middle East is a consequence of that decision. We also see his succumbing to the fear of man in chapter 12 with Pharaoh and again in chapter 20 with Abimelech, where he pretended Sarai was his sister. Now, it's a half-truth, but it was a deception nonetheless, and it was a deliberate deception. But the Lord's eternal purposes will not be thwarted by man's frailty. There's a very clear picture of Abraham's heart towards the Lord in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19. There's first the interchange between Abraham and his divine visitors about the son to be born to him and Sarah. Then Abraham's pleading with the Lord for the saving of Sodom. In verse 25, he says, Will not the judge of the earth do right? And then he starts bargaining. I mean, can you imagine standing there with God and bargaining with him? Come on. 
Now, an Israeli pastor suggested that that's where the Jewish people first started their love of argument and debate. <laughs> well, I mean, only a Jew could say it. <laughs> but no doubt, the most powerful part of Abraham's story is chapter 22. When the Lord asks him to sacrifice Isaac, who may well have been a young adult by this stage. It is the most extraordinary faith, a story of faith and confidence in the Lord that we could ever hope to read anywhere. After waiting until he was 100 years old, and now possibly 115 to 120, and probably settled in his heart that God's promises were being lived out, then God says, you've got to sacrifice Isaac. But he's willing to do it. He's willing to do it. And obedience to the Lord is very strange, very scary, and inexplicable demand. But he obeys. And if we read Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And of course, there's the echo of Jesus. Even though God has said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. <coughs> Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. I can't begin to imagine what was going through his mind at the time. What on earth did he say to Sarah? I'm going to take our boy up the mountain. God's told me I have to sacrifice him. Maybe he didn't tell her. Maybe indeed. How on earth did he explain where he was going? And as I mentioned once or twice before, what on earth was Isaac thinking? But God, he is our provider. Genesis 22:14. God is our provider because as we know he, he provided the sheep for the sacrifice now given all that and a whole lot more beside we see a picture of a man chosen by the Lord God Almighty for an extraordinary purpose namely the establishment of God's own special people on the earth <coughs> despite Abraham's weaknesses and blunders yet the Lord's plan continued to be worked out through his life Abraham chose day by day to take God at his word and walk in obedience regardless of the cost. In the midst of extraordinary challenges and encounters with the Lord, a very special relationship was built up. I mean, you couldn't stand with God and argue with him unless you had a pretty good relationship with him. If we look at the conversations this man had with the Lord, the ones that we read about, and the promises made to him, and Abraham's decision to obey the command to sacrifice Isaac, despite heart-wrenching struggle, it's no wonder he was called God's friend. And three times we read, 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7, Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Isaiah 41 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. 
and James 2.23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Three times. I think it means something significant. It was three times. Abraham had learned how to walk in obedience to the word of his Lord and Master. In doing so, he became a beloved son of God, a friend of his Redeemer. Moses. His, Moses' leadership in bringing their people out of Israel, out of Egypt and slavery, giving them the covenant law on Mount Sinai, and preparing them to take their inheritance in the promised land, makes him one of the most significant men in Middle Eastern history. There's a little introduction in um, Young's Concordance, talking of Moses, and it sums it up magnificently. As a historian, an orator, a leader, a statesman, a legislator, a patriot, and a man, Moses stands preeminent. But no mere genius could have made him the originator of sound jurisprudence, the great teacher of monotheism and sound morality, except he had also been a prophet of the Most High, supernaturally guided and aided in his work. And when you read through Exodus, you will see the enormity of the supernatural intervention in Moses' life. Exodus chapter 2 starts with him being born and then gives an extremely brief outline of the next 40 years. In just a few verses, 40 years passes before he fled to Midian to avoid a murder charge. It's safe to assume that during his time in Pharaoh's court, he was well versed in the complexities of Egyptian politics and civilian life. And in fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that. He spent another 40 years in the wilderness, if you will, as a shepherd out in the, in the mountains of the desert of Midian before he first encountered the Lord at the burning bush in Exodus 3. So there's a huge piece of his life that's covered in just a few verses of chapter 2 and then suddenly in chapter 3 the Lord confronts him. Now at this time the Lord God revealed his sacred name. We know that passage. He commissioned Moses for the enormous role of rescuing the whole nation of Israel from slavery. And through Exodus chapter 3 and 4, we encounter the humanity of Moses as he first responds to the Lord's voice in the bush and then struggles to come to terms with what the Lord is actually asking of him. Despite his persistent attempts to get out of it and the Lord's anger at him, yet once again the Lord's purposes will not be thwarted despite the frailty and the weakness of humanity. Exodus Exodus 4, verse 13 to 16. And in the middle of that, Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. Now the Lord was really angry with him. But he actually allowed Aaron to join Moses and kept Moses as the main man. He was not going to let him go scot-free, even though Moses was doing his best to get out of it, if you read through those verses. Now we can only imagine what happened over the next month as Moses went from a cringing stutterer 
to a man of strength and commitment as he dealt with the angry complaints of the suffering Hebrews and then he went face to face with the most powerful man in the world that he knew. He challenged Pharaoh face to face again and again and again. Now Exodus 3 from verse 13 to 15 where the Lord reveals his name suggests that even though the Hebrew people were strong in their identity as a people, it's possible that they and even Moses didn't really know very much about who God was. When you read through those verses, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Moses was being reminded of God's faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to the people through all of their history. And that's something that people knew something about. So if there was to be any chance that Moses would achieve the role chosen for him, he would have had to spend a great deal of time in prayer with the Lord, learning about him, learning to hear his voice, and learning to be obedient to that voice. Somehow, by God's spectacular grace and mercy, Moses was empowered, supernaturally, to lay aside all those thoughts of inadequacy, regardless of being 80 years old, worn out by 40 years looking after sheep in the desert, and rise to extraordinary heights of leadership and authority. Throughout the next 40 years, he undertook the almost unimaginable task of rescuing hundreds of thousands of slaves, possibly even a million or two, led them in crossing the Red Sea, fed and watered them for 40 years. Moses was God's instrument in establishing for the people of Israel, and just think about this, every single aspect of covenant life religious rituals, sacrifices and festivals, priestly duties and special gardens, laws and regulations regarding health, relationships and every other aspect of religious, civil and personal life. <laughs> Effectively, he started the country just from scratch. Now, at this particular point, I want to take a detour. I've been reading Exodus, surprise, surprise, and I have been totally and absolutely gobsmacked by the enormity of the Red Sea Crossing miracle. And I hope that as I show you these things, that you will start to get some kind of idea of just how enormous God is. First of all, you can't see that terribly well, but that was Hollywood's attempt at the crossing of the Red Sea, as Hollywood saw it. Okay? Now, Recent research identifies the Gulf of Aqaba as the place they probably crossed. And Mount, Mount Sinai is over there in Arabia. It's not in, it's not in here. 
Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is over this side. Now, if they had gone and crossed over somewhere here, they would have had to make another crossing. Now, people have actually gone under the water and they have discovered that a little place down here some extraordinary things. Amongst them are chariot wheels. And those chariot wheels had features that were unique to Pharaoh's chariots. Furthermore, when you look at a topographical map of the Gulf of Aqaba, it's deep here, it's deep here, and in between them is what people call a land bridge. Now, it's not really a land bridge, but the whole land just rises up for about half a mile wide, and it's a sort of a funny little cross-section of it might look like this. But the point is that God knew exactly where to take them because the surface of the sea actually has a couple of great big troughs and then it rises up like a little sub-mountain range underneath. Now, it's not a nice, smooth tarmac, but, but it's a surface that people could walk across and take their animals across and take their wagons across without having to go hundreds of feet down a bank and then hundreds of feet back up the bank on the other side. Now, the, the, the Gulf of Aqaba is about 14 kilometres wide at its widest. and this point, it's about 9 kilometres wide. Now, in Genesis, Exodus, sorry, 13, 18, it says there were about 600,000 men. If you go to Numbers 146, it says there are 603,550 men of military age. What about all the other adults? What about all the wives and children? Possibly up to 2 million people, maybe even more. It tells us earlier that the, the Hebrews were very good at having children. <laughs> so there's every chance there were more than two children in every family. You could have had some very large families. And they took thousands of sheep and goats. And they took all their property. And they took masses of stuff they'd taken from the Egyptians. Masses of stuff. Um, so often the, the, the Bible is so understated, but in, in um, Exodus 12, it says, on verse 15, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Now, how on earth did they get out into the Egyptian community and get all that stuff? I mean, they did. I'm not questioning that they did. But how on earth did they do it? It's supernatural intervention. These people, were, the Egyptians, were so scared because they just lost their firstborn and they'd been through all those other plagues. And they just wanted these wretched Israelites out of the way. 
But you've got hundreds of thousands of people going through the community saying, give me, give me, give me, give me. <laughs> Can you see what, how gobsmacking this actually is? It's just extraordinary. And it doesn't finish there. Because when you read Exodus 37, 38 and 39, this is when Moses is actually telling the people about building the tabernacle. And the Bible is very specific about the amounts of stuff that were used. And, wait for it, they had enough acacia wood and animal skins to make this enormous tabernacle. They had almost two tons of gold, almost seven tons of silver. My maths brain can't help but get excited about this. And five tons of bronze. And they had vast quantities of other gemstones. And the blue, red, and purple fabric. You just have to read those chapters. It's stunning. They had it all there with them. They'd got it off these wretched Egyptians. <laughs> and then you can think about it and think, it's, it's a glorious picture of Jesus despoiling the enemy. Where his people despoil the Egyptians. And that's not all. But wait, there's more. <laughs> now the best the best way to talk about the relationship that Moses had with the Lord is to actually let the word of God speak for itself. Please turn to Exodus thirty three, because I want to read quite a significant part of Exodus thirty three and a little bit of Exodus thirty four. Now this is the point where the people had rebelled, they had built the golden calf, Moses had come down and smashed the tablets that he had. But God said, he was so angry with the people of Israel, he said, I'm not going with them. He said, I'm going to keep my promise that they go to the promised land and I'll send an angel with them, but I'm not going. And Moses gets into an Abraham mode and starts arguing with the Lord, bargaining with the Lord again. And it's just stunning. Looking at verse 9. Moses went into the tent. The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. They were too frightened to go out where Moses was. The power of God was so intense. Now, that verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Whoa. It's so easy just to read over that. But that's, that's really something. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now, that's a really, really important point. He stayed there. And he was being prepared for his role of taking the people into promised land. Moses starts bargaining. He said to the Lord, you've been telling me to leave these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. I've got to tell you a little joke at this point. Somebody told me ages ago, Moses and the Lord were arguing about the people here. And the Lord said, 
You take over them. Moses said, no, 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 be your people. And the Lord said, well, come up the mouth, I'll give you a couple of pebbles. Don't give up your day job. Don't give up my day job. Not my joke. But the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses, now notice he had said just before that, he said, I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel with you. But Moses says, Come on now, Lord. If I really have found favor with you, please come. I don't want to go if you don't come. Moses, and he said in verse 14, Moses said, if your presence doesn't go, don't send us. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And that's seeking after God's honour and glory, just the same way Abraham did. Surely the God of all the earth will do right. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Now, wouldn't you like the Lord to say that to you? Because for sure I would. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you can't see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Huge compassion. And if you jump down to 34, starting at verse 6. As the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Very relevant given the golden calf just not too many days before. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your sight, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. That's an enormous passage. There is so much of God's splendor and glory manifested in and through Moses that the people were terrified. And Moses wore a veil over his face. We see that at the end of Exodus 34. What can we say about that sort of connection to the Lord at that level of intimacy and relationship? Did Moses slip up? Did he bungle? Yes, of course he did. And the worst was when he was angry with the people's stubbornness and he struck the rock after being told to only speak to it. And that's in Numbers 20. Oh, I forgot forgot to say to you that 
Exodus 14 tells us that it only took them through the night to go across the Red Sea. They were over by the time daylight came. And then just a, a couple of pictures from Mr. Google of what the tablets might have looked like. When, when, when Moses struck that rock instead of um, just speaking to it, he actually suffered a really, really severe penalty because he had severe responsibilities and he was prevented from actually going into the promised land. But despite all of that, in establishing the law and all the other regulations for his people, it says in Exodus 40, 16, Exodus 40, 16, Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him, despite his error, despite his weakness. Now, Psalm 103, verse 7 and 8 is really very telling. I'll just read this this morning again. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Big difference, his ways to Moses but his deeds to the people of Israel. That's Psalm 103, verse 7. Ooh. Bear with me, because I'd like to have a wee look at David. We're all very familiar with the phrase used of him, that he was a man after God's own heart. My question to you is, what earth does that mean? What does it mean? What does it actually tell us of God's heart? And it's worth actually taking some time to ponder that. The Apostle Paul referred to this phrase as he spoke in the synagogue at Pisidia. After a moving saw, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's Acts 13. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And we toss it out. King David is one of the most well-known figures in Jewish history. His was a turbulent life, filled with contradictions. Happiness and pain, warfare and love, triumphs and failures, gross sin and heart-wrenching repentance. He was a shepherd, a musician, a poet, a warrior, a murderer, and an adulterer. He spent years in his youth out in the fields looking after his sheep. And during those years, he developed a very special walk with the Lord. His psalms are full of praise and worship, alongside times of complaint and anxiety. They show the emotional outburst of a heart that had grown a very simple, uncomplicated trust in the protection and power of his God. Remember, he was only a very young man when he met Goliath. But think about his outburst at Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares to challenge the armies of the living God? Now that only comes from a heart that has really, really got to know his God. Did David mess up? Yes! And big time. He pretended to be insane to save his life when Saul chased him. Yet, by balance, 
He honoured the Lord by not killing Saul on two separate occasions, what would have been very easy for him to do. And remember, at this time, he had already been anointed king by Samuel. So he knew what his destiny was. But in 1 Samuel 26, 11, he says, The Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now think of the whole episode of Bathsheba. Goes through three chapters. He stayed home in comfort instead of being with his army. He lusted after Bathsheba. He committed adultery. Then he murdered Uriah to cover his sin. Later on, he totally messed up over the, the rebellion of Absalom. Three more chapters. But David knew how to repent. He would seek the Lord's face in prayer and he would willingly take the consequences of his sin. And through it all, he worshipped and trusted the God of Israel. Now one of the most beautiful passages of scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there isn't time to read the chapter, but I would ask that you take time to read it because there's something glorious in there. David's desire to honour the Lord led him to want to build a permanent tabernacle. They still only had the tent. But in verse 11, the Lord says, The Lord himself will establish a house for you. You don't build me a house, I'll build you a house. David's response in verse 18 and 19 says it all. Who am I, Lord, and who is my family that you have brought me this far? Is this your usual way of dealing with men, sovereign Lord? The lives of these three men give us wonderful illustrations of our God who searches the hearts of man for integrity and above all, the desire to honour and worship him. He made it clear to Samuel in rejecting Saul and choosing David when he said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But then later, David reminded Solomon of exactly the same thing. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your fathers and serve him with, a, with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Let's not ever underestimate the extent, the depth, and the intensity of God's love for us. The message remains unchanged for you and me today. Our Lord and Saviour seeks men, women and children who will willingly seek after him, love him and obey him. His covenant with us is the one Jesus made at Calvary. Forgiveness of our sins, fullness of life, health and joy in this life and with him in eternity. And you're very familiar with Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom. And then it says, all these things will be given to you. God wants us to enjoy life in its fullness, enjoying all the beauty and the wonder of friendship with him and all the good things he has provided for us to enjoy. 
you and I might not be an Abraham or a Moses or a David, but be assured we have each been called to be the man or the woman that God himself has chosen us to be. We can be God's chosen, anointed and gifted mum or dad. We can be his chosen, anointed and gifted shop assistant or the lawyer or the carpenter or whatever. Whatever and whoever the Lord has created, let's be that one whose life honours our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go back to John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the examples of men like Abraham and Moses and David and all of the others all through the world's history. People who have walked in obedience to you. Some have been in the limelight and some have been in the background. But you have known. Lord, just as you know each and every one of us, you know the depths of our heart. You know the desires of our heart. Lord, I pray that as we seek your face, we will learn more and more of who you really are. To understand, Lord, just how vast your love for us is. The lengths that you're prepared to go to. That we might be the man or the woman that you have destined for us to be. Oh, Father God, come in the power of your Holy Spirit. Stir our hearts. Stir our hearts to seek you afresh. To give you freedom to be who you want to be in our lives. Oh, Father God, touch our hearts afresh. Touch our hearts afresh by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord God, we worship you. We acknowledge you are God. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's just take a moment or two and allow the Holy Spirit to speak deeply into our hearts. To show us something new of who he is and to show us how he sees us. Oh, thank you.
Almighty God we serve. Amen.